Christian nationalism to get in the face of the Christian nationalists. The phony nationalism of so-called Christians is what we mean. The expression is accusatory, a term of abuse for a corruption of both Christian and nation. In theology, this is called blasphemy, idolatry, confusing a symbol with what it is a symbol of. Uh, that is uh, from In Search of Radical Theology by John Caputo. I'm looking forward to reading that book. Yeah, it's his uh, latest book, uh, Radical Theology. Really good. Yeah, good. Um, this is House Mercy Podcast. It is, it's a cold day. It's a cold I hope day. you're somewhere warm or, you know, it, it might not even be today when you're listening to this, but I'm, I'm glad you're listening. Yeah, and uh, where are you coming from? You sound different. Yeah, you know, I am actually at the Walker. The Walker? I, yeah, and it is really delightful to be here. And there's hardly anyone here, and it feels safe. And, uh, yeah, I just, I needed... You know, yeah, something other than the walls of my house. And yeah. this is, well, I recommend fantastic. this as medicine for anyone. If, you know, yeah, keep your distance, only sell a few tickets, it's good. Yeah, good. All right. All right, then. Uh, How about you? Where are you? Are you in like um, mm, Hollywood? Yeah, or? I'm in, uh, yeah, actually Brownsville, Texas. Oh, interesting. Yeah. No, that's <laughs> not right. true. I'm sitting in the House of Mercy World Headquarters here in our office. Yeah. All right. This. So, uh, but, you know, it's a, the heat The heat is on in here, and that's good. Uh, so, but hey, you know what? I think a lot of you uh, might have been looking forward to our celebration of Condomas today, which we were going to have a blessing of the condoms uh, outside and of course, uh, we will be we would be having pie available for people, a gift of pie with the condos, as we do traditionally. But you know, it's uh, 27 degrees below zero outside, so um, we we decided that we would postpone it. It is actually, after all, a, a movable feast, and so we've moved it. Yeah, we moved it to the 21st of February, Sunday, the 21st. Um, 5 p.m., we will do a short liturgy of a blessing of the candle. So even if it's cold, we won't keep you out there too long. Um, and it won't and be pie. that cold. Yeah. It will be pie. Um, and will these, I think, are these going to be individual pies? They are. They're individual pies. So, you know, you don't even have to stand out there in the cold and eat them. You could take them in your car or take them home. And just give or stand to, outside if it's nice. I mean, you know, whatever. Yeah, it's not going to be as cold. I mean, it might even be 60 degrees warmer, which would make it like 20 degrees. 
But um, no, it's going to be warmer. And will you just like remind some of us exactly what Candlemas is? Well, Candlemas is a time when we traditionally you bring a candle from it is, your it's, home to remember drink. it's pronounced Candlemas. Um, at Candlemas, you bring the candle to the church, to the community, and light it in the community, and then you bring that sort of blessing and warmth of the community home. To your own home when you light your condol. Yes, this is a condol. Very, very good. It's in the spirit of uh, the season of Epiphany, um, where it's the revelation of the light of the world to uh, to the world. And so we find that in community, and we can bring that light and warmth back to our own individual homes. And no doubt it has origins and more indigenous forms of worship, which I think is always one of the coolest things. Yes, it certainly does, yep. Getting in the fire, bringing it into your hut. I'm yeah. Not, I hope hut, I wouldn't mean to like, whatever kind of dwelling you might have in your... Uh, but in won't it be nice time. to see people? I hope, I hope it's a warm day. Yeah, just be great. It's short. Come here, 5 p.m. outside. Um... Yeah, and we'll have that service. So, and, and there'll uh, still be a podcast with the sermon and absolutely. prayers and all that. But yeah. you know, you can do both. Listen to the podcast later. Yeah. Come get your condo blessed. Condo blast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, you know what? Yeah. What were you saying? Oh, we have another thing. Were you ready? You're going to say anything more? Should I announce the next thing? No, I think the next thing is ready to be announced. The next thing is a Zoom service on the 28th, the sort of quasi-service. Um, there will be, you know, there'll be some youth-led elements, some singing, there'll be a scavenger hunt. Um, but we'll see each other, see each other's faces on Zoom, and we're going to try this uh, Zoom quasi-service. Yeah, Zoom quasi-service. Yeah, it's going to be fantastic. Uh, um uh, Eric uh, Brandt and the whole Brandt um, family singers will be leading us in some hymns, and there's gonna, yeah, it's going to be I think it's going to be a great thing, something we haven't done yet so far, and it's going to be a quasi service. So put those two things on your calendar, and we really look forward to seeing all your faces. This is the House of Mercy, and welcome to it. Please join me in the prayer of invocation. God of mercy, wherever we are, however we feel, whether we are sick and tired or energized, full of faith or utterly lacking, invigorated by life or having a hard time getting out of bed, tell us what we need to hear. Show us something that we need to see to bring your mercy into the world. Amen. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from my wounded side which flowed me of sin, the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt.
my zeal, no respite, no. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. While I draw this fleeting breath, when mine eyes shall close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne, rock of ages left for me, let me hide myself in thee. Join me in the prayers of community. I'll end each prayer or petition with God in your mercy, and I invite you to respond here our prayer. God of everything and all people everywhere, you can seem a little distant sometimes, to be honest, like you're maybe leaving us to sort through our own messes, like our white supremacy problem or the disparity in income and health care and access to clean water and good food, or the climate crisis. We probably just don't have the eyes to see or ears to hear you all the time. But if you're waiting for us to ask, we need your help to transform our hearts and minds, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear, to give us the vigor or energy or whatever it takes to create paths to justice, to give us hearts of mercy. God, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God of mercy, we pray for the church, the body of believers or barely believers or believers of ideas that aren't that true, the communities that gather in your name and yet betray you. Give us your love and help us to see it. Send us your mercy and help us pass it on. However bumbling and broken we are, forgive us and help us embody your grace and keep us from paths that lead to destruction. It's humbling to be a church these days. May this lead us to reformation. God, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God of mercy, thank you for the life of Joni Henry, for the love she brought into the world. We trust your love continues to hold her. Be with Linda and Grace and Sam and all those who will miss her terribly. God, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We pray for those who are having to face diagnoses that are not very good, that will have to struggle to muster much sense of hope. We pray that the depth and breadth of your love will work its way into every opening, that there might be moments of beauty and peace and connection, that you will make it clear that you never abandon us, even when it seems like it. We pray that you might heal, comfort, 
and strengthen those who are suffering. We pray especially for Sonia's dad. God, in your mercy, hear our prayer. As we pause for silence, help us pray. Gather all the prayers of all the people into your loving arms. Amen. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. And straightway, on leaving the synagogue, Jesus entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sunset, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door. And he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is searching for you. He answered, Let us go on to the neighboring towns, so that I may proclaim the message there also, for that is what I came out to do. And he went throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. From the perspective of the end, and you understand it differently, like, oh, so the mom wasn't even talking to him. She didn't even see him. The Gospel of Mark should be read that way. Uh, in the Gospel of Mark, if you go back and read everything from the perspective of the end, that is in light of the execution and resurrection of Jesus, you understand every scene differently. Like in today's text, this is a great, perfect illustration of this, Jesus and his first four disciples, he gets... Um, that he's picked up. They leave the synagogue where he's just cast out an unclean spirit, and they go to Peter and Andrew's house where they tell Jesus that Peter's mother-in-law is in bed with a fever, and Jesus then just goes to her, takes her by the hand, and raises her up, and the fever leaves her, and she begins to serve them, it says, which is like, you know, give her a minute, but that's what it says. and then that evening, uh, the, at, at sundown, they go and they bring everyone who is sick or possessed with demons, and then the whole, the whole city gathers around the door of the house, and uh, Jesus cures all the sick and casts out all the demons. 
So, I mean, at first read, like I, you see that Jesus is continuing after he's cast out a demon in the synagogue, then he goes and he heals Peter's mother, and then he uh, heals a bunch more people, and he casts out a bunch more demons. And you think, okay, this is the beginning of the book. We're just getting to know this Jesus character, and one thing we know about him, he heals and casts out demons. But when you read it from the perspective of the end of the book, post-resurrection, post post-Roman Empire in cahoots with the Jewish leaders and the Jerusalem power, arrest Jesus, the Romans execute him, and uh, then he raises from the dead, is resurrected, takes death up with him. And so when you read this text, from the perspective of the resurrection, you see maybe things a little bit differently. First of all, when Jesus raises her up, this is the same word, phrase, construction that the angel tells the Marys at the resurrection when they come to the tomb. They say, oh, are you looking for Jesus of Nazareth? He's not here. He has been raised up in the same way. So we see that he's living out this resurrection. He is resurrecting, bringing to new life Peter's mother-in-law. And where it says she immediately began to serve, this is not, they're not like, she's not making them sandwiches. She's serving in the same way it's related to when the other disciples were called, they immediately followed him. They gave themselves to him, dedicated themselves to him, and that's the way in which served is being used. Just in the same way that Jesus calls those first disciples, he's calling Peter's mother-in-law, and she becomes one of his disciples. Which, I mean... Maybe she makes sandwiches too, but that's not, in, that's not the point. And also you see here that um, they're le- you le- he's leaving the synagogue and going in to Peter's home and performing this healing. And then at the door of the house, outside the door of the house, he, the whole town has come and he's healing and casting out demons. So he's in the synagogue and he, by leaving the synagogue, he is pronouncing right from the beginning, the beginning of Mark, that the synagogue is corrupt, that the synagogue is unclean. I mean, it says immediately while he was teaching the synagogue, a man with an unclean spirit. There's an unclean spirit in the synagogue. It's supposed to be a holy place, but clearly it is not because this unclean spirit is there. And Jesus casts him out. And Jesus then immediately with his disciple, leaves that holy place and brings the sense of holy place with him and goes into this house and heals in this house, makes the everyday home a holy place, makes the streets the new holy place um, after rejecting the corrupt and unclean synagogue and uh, 
So this is, uh, these healings, and everywhere the healings in Mark are political, and the political and the theological cannot be separated. This is a, a political act. And we can see that the powers that he called corrupt are representative of the powers that, in the end, arrest him and execute him. Of course, is resurrected and brings back new life to everyone. And he indeed is, he is raised to serve the good news and raises others in turn that we might serve the good news. When I was a kid, when I was seven years old, in 1972, we, my family, me and my brother Mike and my sister and other brother and mom and dad, we moved from Ventura, California to St. Paul, Minnesota. My dad was a Baptist minister, an American Baptist minister, which is kind of a progressive Baptist denomination. But back then we said liberal because in the 1970s, liberal was still a good thing for a Christian to be. And they didn't say progressive because progressive Baptist was a fundamentalist denomination and fundamentalist wasn't yet a good thing for a Christian to be. That's the way it was in Southern California anyway. My dad had sort of made a name for himself as a hippie minister in Ventura. He took a dying old Baptist church in a bad neighborhood and started a, a coffee house in the basement. Hippie bands and folk singers would play and all the hippie kids from nice neighborhoods started going to his church. First of all, all hippie kids are almost universally from nice neighborhoods because if you want to give up all your material possessions and drop out, you have to have an excess of material possessions and you have to be in a position elevated enough to drop from. It's harder to drop out from the bottom. And secondly, by going to a hippie church in a bad neighborhood, they could piss off their parents by being hippies and hanging out in a bad neighborhood but their parents couldn't really say much to him because they were going to church, a church where Jesus said it was okay to be a hippie. Jesus practically invented the whole hippie thing from what they were hearing, so maybe they even had some righteous knowledge they could throw in their parents' face. Word gets out among the American Baptists that my dad kind of knows hippie ways and offers start coming in from all over the country for him to come and start a hippie church for them. But already by 1972, hippies are starting to go back to college, drop back in. They wanted to hang out and hang on to their ideals, but, you know, maybe with cleaner clothes and the ability to get jobs later. My dad took a job in the Twin Cities, St. Paul, Minneapolis, to start a house church for all those growing up, going back to college, cleaner clothes hippies. It was called the Agora Community, a church without walls. And we met in people's houses, just like the first church, and sat on big pillows on the floor and sang Bridge Over Troubled Waters and Eleanor Rigby to the two poorly strummed, poorly played strum of an acoustic guitar. You know, just like the first church. In Southern California in the late 60s and early 70s, a weird, hippie, liberal Baptist church was, well you know, like far out. Most people, even the squares, could kind of dig it. But in the Midwest, in Minnesota, 
in the 70s. Forget about weird hippie liberal. They didn't even really have Baptists here. It was all Lutherans and Catholics. And when I told people my dad was a Baptist minister, they assumed he was black. The only Baptists they'd ever known were black. And then to have to explain that we didn't have a church building, that we met in people's homes, people couldn't comprehend what I was talking about. They thought it was super weird just that I was from California. And then to tell them about my dad being a minister and a Baptist and a church that met in people's homes, yeah, I never had the chance to be anything but the weird kid. And even more awkward, when we left Ventura, California, our weird, hippie, liberal Baptist church had a going-away party for us. And they gave every one of us, me and my brother, Mike, and my sister, and my other brother, and my mom and dad, they gave every one of us a pair of winter boots, which was kind and a thoughtful gesture. We were moving in February, which is in, to Minnesota, which in Minnesota means, you know, right? There's only four more months of winter. But see, nobody at our weird, hippie, liberal Baptist church in Ventura, California, really knew anything about winter boots. They gave us all matching boots. They were a thin rubber with a thin synthetic fur lining. They were black, and they had pointy toes and an inch and a half heel, and they came to just below the knee. They looked like something Mary Tyler Moore would wear which is probably exactly what did inspire them, that being the only reference point to Minnesota any of us had at the time. I mean, I didn't know any better. I thought that's what winter boots looked like. Everyone I knew with winter boots had ones exactly like mine. Honestly, I thought they looked cool with my jeans tucked into them, which is how I wore them on my first day of school in St. Paul. I didn't know when I was being introduced to a new third-grade class by Mrs. Galatowicz that I was wearing sexy lady boots. But my bold fashion choice was not lost on the third-grade class. It wasn't just my being from California, son of a hippie Baptist minister with sexy lady boots. I didn't have a very Minnesota vibe. I didn't know the Scandinavian cultural social cues. I was always very eager, excited. I've always had a lot of social energy. I'm a verbal processor. I talk a lot. And I'm always trying to figure things out. And I want to talk about that with you. I'm not cool. I am maybe, upon reflection, a little needy. Minnesotans are generally not like that. At least it didn't seem like that to me in third grade in 1972. Now Minnesotans are all kinds of ways. We not only have Californians here, we have Nigerians and Somalis and Hmong and West Virginians and... Okay, maybe not that many West Virginians. My people are Bible people. And I say Bible people and not the more expected evangelical or American evangelical. Because that title, while it once might have described who my people were, it has shifted and has much, as has much of the American free church, has, has shifted and become something, frankly, more offensive, dark, 
malevolent, malignant, insidious, and uh, embarrassing. Not to mention violent. So I use the term Bible people to describe the American free church I grew up in. And while I am now only narrowly officially associated with that small remainder, the instincts and desires, the lexicon, the algebra of my being implanted and passed on to me by the community of my mom and dad and grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles and pastors and preachers and church ladies, men's groups, men, and all the way back through Jimmy Carter and Johnny Cash and Martin Luther King and Harriet Bishop and Walter Rauschenberg, and as we say, that great cloud of witnesses. All that is foundational, inescapable for me. It's always there, no matter how I change. It's where I come from. I'm from Bible people. It's not just Bible as a fetish, a sacred object. We love the book. We love that, the bookness of it. We read and we memorize the book, we study the book, we interpret the book, and we try to live the way our interpretation of the book tells us to. We know the verses, we know the stories. Not only are my people Bible people, part of that story we read and take from our holy book is that we are cultural critical people, critical of the powers that be. There are cultural critical people. We are the cultural critical people because our holy book is culturally critical. Critical of the power structures, subverting the power structures. This book from Genesis in the Hebrew Bible through Revelation on the Isle of Patmos, our holy book contains stories of God calling God's creation out of enslaving, idolatrous, numbing, and violent empires that distort human ambition continually. God calls the first people out of corrupt, uh, the corrupted garden, scatters them from the city of Babel, and its egoist building project to reach heaven on their own volition, God calls Abram to leave where he is and his people and gives him no other direction than go to a place I will show you. He raises Moses and Miriam to lead his people out of the Egyptian empire. God sends the People in the Hebrew Bible, judges and prophets, imploring them to resist this desire for a king like that of the tribal powers around them. God sends them prophets to speak against the empire of Israel's kings, attempting that the kings attempt to create and sends them prophets to speak against the empires which take them forcibly into exile and warn and to warn Israel again and again against assimilating and adopting the gods of the dominant culture the desire to the desires of the dominant narrative god calls them out of exile and out of the practice of empire the new testament is a revolutionary document 
written by and for an occupied and powerless people. In spite of the overwhelming power of the Roman Empire, this God calls a people to another way, a way that doesn't confront power with power, but with weakness, that doesn't return violence for violence, but with a radical mercy and reconciling love. This is not a national religion. This is a deconstruction of the idolatrous religion of nationalism. My people have always seen themselves in these stories, seen themselves as captives in Pharaoh's Egypt, exiles in Babylon, the disciples, the early church in the first century Palestine, persecuted and martyred by the occupying Roman Empire and the corrupt religious authorities. It just doesn't work if you read it from the point of view of the powerful. The free churches in America insisted on the separation of church and the Constitution. Churches black and white worked together to fight for the end of slavery. Free church leaders, men and women, began the suffrage movement and carried it through, were instigators in the labor movement. Organizers working with socialists and anyone dedicated to caring for the rights of the marginalized in the face of the powerful. The civil rights movement was born and lived in black free churches in the South. My people, Bible people, free church people, evangelical people at our best read the stories in our holy book and took them as commandments to fight against the injustice of a dominant culture, against the power of the nation, to free the slaves, to clothe the naked, to feed the hungry, to visit the prisoner and care for the widow and the orphan, to love God and to love our neighbor at least as good as we are loving ourselves. But all that changed. The free church, the white American free church, rose with the creation of the middle class. Not all of my people were part of the poor and misused majority. Some of them joined the owners and the misusers and began to ignore the words of the prophets. To distort the words of our holy book, to reinterpret the history of Israel, the life and the teachings, the death and resurrection of Jesus the Christ, to distort the apostles and the epistles, the whole damn thing. The white American evangelical church, through an alchemy dark and prevalent, were able to justify their ambition and desires through twisted interpretations and perversions of their holy book. The histories and the poetry, the prophets and the gospels and the epistles, they love the epistles. Evangelicals began the 20th century as a prophetic counter to contemporary American capitalist culture to the national religion, then began to long for that contemporary American capitalist culture. They began aping its ways while still keeping some distance, creating evangelical versions of contemporary music, movies, romance, novels, business models, and jazzercise. Until finally around the turn of this century, Evangelicals openly embraced American capitalist culture, the nationalist religion, 
reading conservative political ideology into our holy book, shifting the interpretive position of the text from below and a God of the marginalized to above and a God of the nation, of the dominant culture, of the privileged and the powerful. In our current cultural context, we have witnessed evangelical leaders and so many evangelical followers openly embrace a power whose policies and pronouncements and actions wildly contradict the foundational beliefs of American evangelical orthodoxy. Contemporary American evangelicals have abandoned the free church, his free church's historical, cultural critical role, and now worship at the idol of America's God of power and privilege. The American evangelical church today barely resembles the church of my people, the Bible people. While I left this free church behind, I'm grateful for all that I learned in the ways to be passionate about the biblical text and to read it and read the culture with a critical eye. We are raised up by the God of this book not to take our place with the powerful and defend our rights, but we are raised up to serve, to follow the way of the resurrection. We're called to leave the corrupted institutions of power, not fight our way back in. This is God's table and all are welcome. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and gave thanks for it and broke it. And gave it to the disciples to eat, saying, Take, eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this and remember me. And after supper, Jesus took the cup and he gave it for all to drink, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and shed for all people for the forgiveness of sin. Do this and remember me. Kind holy unto the Lord, crying holy unto the Lord. Yeah.
May the grace of God and the love of Christ and the peace of the Spirit go with you and be with you now. Amen.